If you're in a manufacturing company, if you're the CEO of a manufacturing company, you walk the factory floor. You, if you're an effective CEO, you go to the factory, you walk the floor, you talk to the people operating the machines, like what's going on? If you're in retail, if you're a retail CEO, you go to your stores. You have to be close to the work. What should leaders know about agile transformations? Welcome to another episode of Relearning Leadership, where we explore a specific leadership challenge and break it down to help improve your leadership, your organization, and just possibly your personal life. I'm Pete Barron, and today I'm honored to be joined by David Ritter. David is a senior advisor at the Boston Consulting Group. His 40-year career has spanned a wide range of technology, agility, and leadership positions. At BCG, he advises clients on new ways of working and to use technology as a competitive advantage. I know you're going to value and enjoy our conversation as I did. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's great to be so, here. I've been an uh, admirer, have been following your work for, for quite some time and, and certainly been impressed. But, but I think for our listeners, I'd like them to know a little bit more about you. And, and so I'd love for you to share maybe just a bit of your experience arc with them. Sure. And, and likewise, uh, Pete. So I've always appreciated our, our collaborations. Um, so I, I started as a programmer, uh, computer science, Georgia Tech, came up through the ranks as a programmer in a traditional model, then became a manager of programmers and then a manager of manager of programmers. I ran uh, some large organizations in traditional software companies going back into the 80s and 90s, um, discovered Agile in a startup um, uh, and uh, uh, had the opportunity to build and run Agile teams from the ground up in that context, doing it, I would say, badly at first. Um, but uh, after five years, probably getting better at it. And really, I would say my developers teaching me what it meant uh, to be, you know, to really empower and get, uh, you know, get the purpose to the rock face. Def um, definitely and, been there with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and been in and out of consulting. So I have a, you know, I have a great desire to help shape things. I also have a great desire to help build things. So, you know, I've, I've, I've actually done three different stints at the Boston Consulting Group, starting first in 1998, and then I left to do a startup, and then I rejoined in 2002. And then it came back uh, and then I left to do another startup for five years. And But for the last 11 years, I've been at BCG helping organizations essentially apply agile principles, new ways of working uh, to help them very often build software better. But increasingly these days in other areas as well, marketing, operations, wherever iterative test and learn makes sense, which turns out a lot of the work that we do uh, makes sense, as I know you have discovered as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's been a great journey. We've had a, an opportunity through BCG, obviously working with some of the largest, best companies in the world that still struggle with these things. So, um, you know, happy to bring some of that experience to bear. Yeah, well, I, I certainly appreciate that. And, and I often hear from some of the consulting firms, right? It's my best first, third and fifth job, right? <laughs> you come back and back into those and they're, 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 they often welcome you. I think the consulting firms sometimes, I think from our kind of niche agile coaching community get a bad rap, right? I think we, we like to pick on them um, probably from a bit of jealousy, but also maybe from a legitimacy of coming in more in that traditional directive change versus maybe I think the way we would see ourselves more coaching change. Uh, what do we get wrong about consulting firms like BCG and, and how would you counter that argument in terms of how they're working in the agile space with, with these kind of transformations? Well, um, uh, I listened to your podcast episodes on, on agile scaling. And uh, one of the things that I've shared with you before that you say in there is, you know, in a lot of the training that goes on around agile leadership, what you hear is, I wish my boss was here to hear this, right? Yeah. 
So what what firms like BCG bring to the table is the relationship at the C-suite level and the credibility to tell them, look, wake up. You know, what got you here is not going to get you there. You really need to fundamentally rethink. And very often we are able to intervene at a time when the company is facing a burning platform that actually sets up the context for change. Um, This stuff is hard. Right. Taking a large organization and getting them to break down the functional silos and really apply agile principles in a way that that makes significant difference. It's really hard. You've got to have the leadership team aligned behind that change. And I think that that's one of the core things that BCD brings. Just also, you know, the change management capability, right? And, you know, you can argue which firm is better than the others. BCG has a great track record in actually driving large transformations of many kinds, post-merger integrations, digital transformations, et cetera, over our history. You know, we've, we've been able to understand how to promulgate change in organizations. You know, we have great tools like Ready, Willing, Enable that um, is, a, is a standard toolkit that we use to, to help bring the entire organization along in a change journey. So I think those kind of basic capabilities actually bring a lot to, to the table. Um, and we've been running our engagements in Agile, maybe not explicitly under those terms, but increasingly now when we engage with a client, we do it in Agile and we explicitly use Agile. You know, we actually run Scrum very often or Kanban as it, with joint teams with our clients. So we form joint teams and we've done this for 60 years now, but we've gotten a little more structured and formal around it using the Agile toolkit more explicitly. So, um, you know, in that sense, it's, it's, it's almost native for us to think and work this way. Well, that's awesome to hear. You know, we often, I often like to use the term, right? We use agile to be agile, right? We, we, we take those agile principles and apply them to transformation. I mean, it's, I, I'm still amazed how many executives drive agile transformation in a traditional project plan. And it, it, it's, it's just fundamentally kind of just ingrained in our, our executive process. And uh, do, you find, do you find resistance to that uh, approach in terms of the transformation? Absolutely. And, and look, I wish I could say we were always successful, you know, um, but, you know, when we're not, you know, we, we face these questions all the time, you know, a lot of specific examples. When can we get rid of these coaches? So these agile coaches that are <laughs> like, when like, you know, and, and I say, like, so, so do, do football teams fire their coaches after the preseason <laughs> and just let the players they do. play? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, this is this uh, and the, the, the tendency for organizations to revert to the norm is incredibly is incredibly strong. What, what do consulting organizations get wrong? The large consulting organizations very often they don't stay around long enough. Um, uh, to really embed the change. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think where you read about the stories about, you know, failed agile transformations, I think very often there's a certain lack of, I would say, I'll, I'll use the word courage, I would say, uh, to really, um, you know, at the executive team level and also in some cases in the consulting organizations to say, you know, um, there are things we're willing to get fired for. You know, and to, to basically be able to tell folks, if, if you're not going to embrace this in a way that will be persistent, you're going to end off worse than you were because you're going to set an expectation uh, with your organization and then you're not going to meet it. Yeah. Well, and you're reminding me, uh, an executive was asking me once, like, when are we going to land this plane? You know, and it, it kind of that project end milestone of, of, okay, this project's over. And, you know, you say courage. I agree. I also say patience, right? That, that yes. the concept of an investment that has to be reinvested, right? The dividends, the reinvest those earnings over and over to really build that win takes 
a patience that I think a lot of executives don't have, or that maybe they're just not even given, you know, in the fast paced change world. Fundamental to me is the continuous improvement mindset, right? And that's really getting that landed, you know, despite whatever, 40 years of history, the Toyota production system, you know, all work is an experiment. The, the continuous improvement mindset with your teams and at the executive level, you know, if you don't get there, then you're, you're not going to have the patience, uh, you know, or, or just the notion that, that we always need to get better and that the, the transformation process is continuous, not discrete. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I know you come from a much more technical background as, as I do and, and have focused a lot on digital transformation, technical transformation, how do you differentiate agile transformation from digital? Because I think from a lot of organizations I see, those get merged, those get combined. But are they different things? How do you differentiate? Talk to me a little bit more about that landscape when you're connecting those with agile. Yeah, for sure. So the the uh, one of the CIOs at a very large company asked me, he kind of squinted and I think he was testing me. He said, so like is agile an end in itself or is it a means to an end? And I said, is that a trick question? Of course, agile is a means to an end. Agile is a how, right? Um, and in that sense, digital is often the why hmm. and the what. So where do we start these conversations? You know, we're behind on digital, right? Our competitors are killing us by because they are better at digital. They are moving faster. They're more responsive to their customers. They are more customer focused and are delivering value to customers faster. You know, our mobile app is terrible. Theirs is great, right? Right? Why is that? How did we get here, right? Why? Why? How did we get so far behind? Um, what are they doing that we're not, right? So the digital agenda, when tied into really goals like being more customer centric, uh, driving better self-service, higher customer satisfaction, you know, through through better interactions, better understanding of customers through customer data. You know, agile is the way that you can focus resources around those outcomes in a way to achieve them. So, you know, you need a why you need a compelling why um, at least, you know, uh, an aspiration to be great, if not a burning platform like, you know, the house is on fire and, and we, we really need to rethink things. That's interesting. You know, we were working with uh, an organization and very similarly, right, their why was about we've got to innovate, right? The, the, uh, the insure tech space is, you know, transforming faster than we are, right? The, the mobile, the, the quick response times, right? The, the ability to, to deliver AI technologies, right, to, to help, you know, solve problems. But it was interesting because we focused on just the concept of innovate. How do we innovate? And technology was one piece of it, but you've kind of replaced that to say, well, yes, innovate, but but digital or the technical kind of comes on the surface of that. Innovate for what purpose, right? So this is where so it's very interesting. I think you know if you read Eric Ries's books, right? Um, yep. You know, in the first one, he kind of says you should have a group that does innovation and then hand stuff off. And I think in his second book, he kind of says, yeah, it turns out that's kind of a mistake. Right? <laughs> Actually, You're talking about the, the lean startup stuff, yeah, exactly, yeah, lean startup and, and the, the I forget the name of the sequel, but but uh, um, you know that end to end responsibility for everybody to innovate around an outcome. And so this is where you know when we start these conversations, we say, what do you want to achieve, right? Ben Stein said, uh, you know, the first step in understanding and uh, getting what you want out of life is to is to uh, figure out what you want. <laughs> right. Um, so to and to articulate that in a structured way, you know, a particular 
I'll call it a technology that we use. Uh, you might call it a recipe that we use for that these days is OKRs. We, you know, the conversation we have the executives around that is OKRs bring clarity and focus to goal setting the way that Scrum and Agile bring clarity, focus, transparency to work. Right? It's a it's a it's a method, um, and you know, in and of itself, it doesn't create value. But it's through that conversation where you get alignment at the executive level, like you know. We want to grow this part of the business, uh, and how are our resources aligned against that? Who, how, how does that translate into actual working team structure, cross-functional working team structure? We call this outcome-driven team design, right? Set your outcomes at a high level, cascade them down to the point where you've got uh, them at a reasonable level of granularity, and then you do this trick where you rotate the world 90 degrees and you say, let's pretend those outcomes are teams. And you ask this question, who would we need to put on those teams in order to achieve that outcome? That's where you get this alignment uh, that cascades into the organization and really gives you, you can answer the question, how are our resources aligned against, uh, against our goals? Yeah. And, and so, and all of that involves innovation because the how of, the, of achieving those goals is pushed down to the teams. The teams come back and say, this is how we will pursue this goal. Everybody will have a point of view about the approach. What the word that we inject into that conversation, which we think is really, really helpful, is everybody's ideas, including the teams, about how to achieve the goal, they are hypotheses. Yeah, we love that. Love that right. word. Right. One of the one of the things I think the, the consulting firms do help executive leaders with is probably a little bit more of the clarity. In that goal, I think a lot of us in the niche community come in this. Let's just get better. Right? It's a bit amorphous, and I think, in some ways, that's great to create that empowerment. But other ways, I think leaders can feel a little lost. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's some of the reason these recipes are so valuable and safe is seen as such a uh, an important step because it, it gives a little bit more direction. Right. I, I think that balance is really critical, right? How do you give a bit more direction but still leave that room for you know, creativity and innovation in the, the company itself. Balance is the hardest thing. You know, if, if you're riding a horse, you can fall off the left side of the horse, you can fall off the right side of the horse, right? The key is how do you stay on the horse? And this is the hardest thing, I think, for particularly for large organizations is to maintain that balance between the role of the center and the empowerment of the teams. This, you know, in Spotify terms, this is alignment and autonomy, which are not, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. You, you need both. It's, it's within the guardrails. It's within the alignment that teams can really innovate. And getting that balance right, shifting it over time, making teams more empowered, and then maintaining that, it's, it's really, really hard. And it, and it requires a constant vigilance over uh, ensuring that the people on the teams are the ones that you're really listening to. So when they, when they say, this is what we can achieve in a given period of time, when the team says that, that the executives don't say, yeah, you can do better. <laughs> right? it, 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 all kinds of examples of that. Yeah. So do you have an example or, or how would you highlight who's doing this well? Like, like, where do we see success happening with digital agile transformation? Well, obviously, the folks that started off, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, more of a, of a white space and this technology was a little bit better understood. 
Um, you know, the, the, the digital natives obviously do this well. I mean, we spent a lot of time looking at Amazon, but even Amazon underwent major transformations. You know, yep. I think, you know, we cite the, you know, the, the famous uh, Bezos API memo, right? And you've talked about this as well, which basically said, okay, if you're going to build a service, you have to, you have to think of that as a product and you have to build it just as though we're going to sell it outside the company, even if your primary customers are, are internal, right? Yep. That, and that is, that is, um, uh, that is, a, that is a mandate. I think, you know, the work that you did at Salesforce, right? So the establishment of uh, what they call V2 bombs, right? Vision, values, methods, obstacles, and measures, right? As, as a way to drive clarity and alignment of what we're trying to achieve, purpose and, and outcomes through the organization all the way down to the rock face, right? These are folks that, that really do this well. You know, the, the, the famous story of ING Bank is one that where, I've, where I've had a lot of personal involvement. So this can obviously happen in traditional businesses as well. I really liked when you talked um, in your podcast around um, scaling, you talked about sort of top down versus bottom up. You talk about, um, you know, games that leaders play versus games that teams play. And it's interesting because ING is actually an example. And you talked about, so Spotify model is sort of an example of a game that teams play that leaders may not. Actually, the ING transformation started with taking the ING leadership team to Spotify. Yeah. And, and sitting them down with the Spotify folks. And the Spotify folks basically said to the bankers, they said, like, what are you willing to give up? <laughs> in terms of your control in order to make this happen, right? And that, that stuck with them, you know, in a, in a profound way. So they, they, got, they got the leaders on board to the Spotify model of alignment versus uh, alignment and autonomy, both, right? Breaking that compromise between alignment and autonomy. And that, that worked out very well. We've also seen examples where SAFE involved bottom up. We worked with a, 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 um, a pharmaceutical company where SAFE started in their manufacturing group um, and then it spread from there because they saw success in that area and they were able to, <laughs> one of the executives said to me, so I said, so why safe? Why are you using safe? And he said, because our executives can Google it and they see that it's a thing <laughs> and they <laughs> therefore will have some confidence that, uh, you know, we're not just making this up and it's some weird cult. Um, so, so I think that this, the notion that these things have to happen both top down and bottom up is really uh, critical, and it's organizations that, that can do that. ING is a great example. Uh, I would say for most organizations, it's tough to do it at that scale, particularly top-down. Most of it bubbles bottom-up, and it takes years, and it may start in IT or it may start in marketing. Um, the question really is, at some point, do you have a leader that is willing to say, you know, we're going we're gonna to bet on this? Bingo, bingo. So what I'm hearing you say is... It can go both ways. It can go wrong both ways. And there's, so there's some characteristic in those organizations that are successful that's enabling that trigger from, it's almost like a permeation between those two layers. Yeah. Somebody's got to cross that bridge and, and get that into the executive or get whatever's going on in the executive effectively working down below without feeling oppressive, right? Because we've seen that happen too. It just gets pushed. Right. What is it in the culture? What is it in the leadership mindset? How do you approach it? I guess at BCG, how do you get that transfer happening? Because that to me is probably the sweet spot in success. Yeah, um, I mean, it, overall, it's about listening, right? And it's really the ability of the organization to listen and to have some humility, right? To be in a learning mindset and a continuous improvement mindset. I would say, you know, I'll, I'll drop down 
to like a very specific tactical practice that, that we, we try to insist on. So if you are a leader in an organization that is doing agile, and generally speaking, you know, I talk about these big sort of top-down, big bang transformations. That is the exception, right? The rule is they start with three teams, <laughs> right? And they want to, they need to see it. It needs to be proven. So you're a leader in an organization that's beginning to run agile teams, go to sprint reviews. Go to sprint review. And yes, it's like, oh, I'm a busy person. I, you know, I'm the CEO of a big company. Uh, you know, um, go to a sprint review and you know, take allocate one or two hours a week to go to sprint reviews. Pick some things that you're interested in. Go to a team sprint review. When you go to that sprint review, ask questions. And the I have sort of one canonical question that I try to plant in the seeds of these leaders. If you ask no other questions, ask this question. How do you know, asking the team, how do you know the work you're doing is likely to achieve your, your result, your outcome? Not your output, but your outcome, right? How do you know? What evidence do you have? What have you learned along the way? How do you know? And listen to them. Because what you'll hear there is you will hear some evidence, but you'll also hear risk. You'll hear issues. And then the next question is, what barriers can I remove for you? How can I help, right? And if you create a few examples of that, those leaders will go back to the staff meeting of the CEO and they will they will talk about this. When the CEO says, so what's going on with your Agile pilot? They will talk about this and they'll say, you know, I went to the sprint review and here's what I heard from the team. I saw real progress, right? I saw actually they showed me work that was in progress, but but was clearly moving in the right direction. And they showed me that they had data and evidence that they that the work that they were doing was actually going to achieve the goal, not just the delivery, the checkbox of the, of the output, but, but the thing. I saw that and you know what, uh, you know, I, I have more confidence and understanding now and I actually feel more comfortable stepping back from that team hmm. because hmm. I know that, you know, I can go any, every two weeks I can go and I can see, and they don't need to read out to me. I can see what they're doing and that transparency is what builds the trust. That's the virtuous cycle, right? Creating those little stories, um, uh, if, you know, we had one of the largest financial institutions in the world. We had a guy come in who was, he was a, a, a seasoned, he was like a, like a N minus four leader in the organization. He came into the steering committee for the agile transformation. And he said, I'll try to quote him as best I can. He said, when I heard about this agile thing, I thought it was the stupidest thing I heard ever heard in my life. <laughs> but I've been trying to do this thing for three years. I've been trying to accomplish this goal for three years and I've been making absolutely no progress. Um, so I said, okay, fine, we'll do this agile pilot. In three months, we've made more progress against this goal than we had in the three years prior. I never want to work any other way. Hmm. That was the tipping point because what that created, uh, you know, it's a lot of this is about emotion. It created, I would say, um, envy maybe in, among his peers, but also fear in the sense of it's sort of like FOMO. It's like, oh, I want some of that. <laughs> How do I get some of that? This is how these bottom-up things can gain traction. It's got you have to prove it, and um, and it's it's in those crucibles that that trust is forged. I feel like you've boiled down crossing the barrier into just one simple step: executive visit the team, and through that, the relationship, the transparency, the potential vulnerability of sharing risk and success. Right, the 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 both end there and just the communication connection that's happening right. to build that relationship. And, and that's what I think is missing between these two games is, is 
they don't do enough of that. They they play in these separate teams and games, and they don't cross over enough. Absolutely. So so um, uh, you know when we talk about team design in a large organization, I'll give you an example. So four thousand people in this wealth management firm, five layers in terms of the operating team structure, starting with the business unit president. That's layer one. Then what they call domain leads, which were teams of teams of teams, so groups of like five hundred then teams of teams, which you might call tribes, right? Then product owners at the team level and team members. 4,000 people, five layers. Everything worked that way. So flat, flat, flat. If you're in a manufacturing company, if you're the CEO of a manufacturing company, you walk the factory floor. You, if you're an effective CEO, you go to the factory, you walk the floor, you talk to yes. the people operating the machines, like what's going on? If you're in retail, if you're a retail CEO, you go to your stores, you walk, the, you, walk you have to be close to the work. Um, and so getting flat structurally helps you do that. But then also it's the behavior, like two hours a week, go to sprint reviews. Your eyes will be open and you will understand this at a level that, that your peers won't. Yeah, one of my favorite um, visits with a senior leadership team this past year was joining them on their manufacturing tour and going all throughout Europe uh, every day, spending a day at a different plant. and. Uh, I was fortunate they invited me to two of those days and spend a half day to, to educate them as well. But the, the management by walking around, the Gemba, the Gemba walks and, and conversations, right? The, the just the opportunity to put a spotlight on what's going on, problems, challenges, right? And then doing that day over day. And then at night they got on a bus, go to the next one, right? And so then there's this whole team unity that's going on there too. And these, they're coming from China and Brazil and, and you know, Europe and US, Canada, right? They're coming from all over and they're all kind of taking this little this bus tour and it was just really fascinating to see how much connection in that one week right how much connection that was able to make and yes some of this is manufacturing but some of this is design and development and you know uh, technical that that's harder to see and i know for many companies that work on a global scale to think about that seems overwhelming yet the power is 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 so incredible uh, we would say it's essential. So as you know the show Undercover Boss. Yeah, right. So so and this is this is a core part of it as well. And I think why agile leadership journey is so critical, right? It's it's because how you show up in those settings is absolutely vital. You shouldn't have to go undercover <laughs> in order to understand what's going on in your organization. You need to be able to show up in a way that's not intimidating. And that's that's the you know some folks would say servant leadership. A lot of organizations aren't comfortable with that terminology, but it's the upside down pyramid. I, I saw a presentation by the this guy who was the CEO at Home Depot during their transformation. That's what he said. You know, my transformation as a leader was looking at the pyramid upside down, right, with me at the bottom and my sales associates on the on the on the, on the, the store floor at the top. That's my job is to make them successful, right? And, and that's this is basic stuff, but it's it's incredibly. Um, amazing how uncommon it is. Mm. And, you know, the average tenure of a CEO is whatever, three years these days, right? It's, it's that, it's the, I, I, I think the two terms we've arrived at, right? Courage and persistence. It's so tough um, to, to get those in combination. So without the answer of, you know, hire David or hire BCG, what advice would you give to a leader that, that is looking to undertake this kind of significant transformation. Right, so, so the first conversation I would wanna say is, um, 
let's pick a key outcome that you want to achieve and let's have a conversation about who's working on that and how are they working on it. And this gives you the opportunity to kind of take a core sample through the organization. So, um, and we talked about top down versus bottom up and another place where this intersection can really occur is in taking that a top level goal. We want to grow the, the profitability of this business unit by X percent over three years and drill that down and say, where is that specifically going to come from? What products is that going to come from? And, there's the cascade, and then there's also this concept of laddering, which is the bottom-up process. It's talking to the people in the organization saying, oh, so, so what is, why, why is this not growing faster than it is? If you read the OKR literature, they'll say um, the process should be 50% top-down and 50% hmm. bottom-up, cascading and laddering, meeting in the middle. We would say it should be 70% top-down and 70% bottom-up <laughs> because it's the, 40%, it's the 40% overlap. It. That, that, that is actually where that occurs. So it's actually sometimes these conversations don't touch on agile at all until you get to that point where you say, OK, here's a part of that goal. Like this product is not being successful. You know, there are issues with this product in order to grow that product. Let's take that goal of growing that product in that market. And so consumer goods company, one of their key goals was they had a brand of shampoo that they wanted to triple the market share of that shampoo in India. Great. Over two years. Terrific. Who's on that team? You're going to create a team. We're going to design a team whose goal is to do that. And the issues may be, there may be three different kinds of issues. There may be a formulation issue. Maybe the product isn't ideally designed for that market. Maybe there's a distribution issue where it's not in the right stores. There's probably also a supply chain problem where you can't actually reliably deliver it because you have supply chain constraints in that market. So, in order to solve that, you need all three of those things. So that team needs skill sets around all three of those. Let's create that team. Well, two, two things I'm taking away from that. Uh, number one, simply pay attention to something, right? Give, have an intention that you're focusing on. What you're saying is we've got to put a spotlight on that. We've got to, we've got to gather people around that and look at it. The second thing that I take away from that is I, I love your metaphor of the, the it's not 50-50, it's 70-70, right? You're, you're explicitly providing that overlap of intersection. And that to me is a, is a new way of thinking about uh, the two games we play. Yeah, so that was, that was really insightful for me. You know, somebody should write a book called Start With Why. <laughs> yeah, I'll work on that. One. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's, there's a book that's it's an example of a book that you only need to read the title. Um, another one of those, which I really like, is is the one thing. I don't know if you've seen this. I was walking through the airport one day and looking at the book kiosk in the airport, and there's this book. It says the one thing, and I say, I know what that book that book's about. I don't need to read it. Basically, it's 200 pages that says if you let people focus on one thing at a time, they are dramatically more productive, <laughs> right? But it, you know, it's like, but easy to say, hard to do. The same thing I saw when I was uh, uh, looking at the book, take the stairs. Like just yes. put in the effort, <laughs> just put in the effort. <laughs> I like that. Well, David, I just want to say thank you. I feel smarter today uh, having talked with you about this and, and shared uh, this dialogue. So I appreciate you joining us and sharing your stories. Absolutely. Yeah, happy to do it. Relearning Leadership is the official podcast of the Agile Leadership Journey. Together, we build better leaders. It's hosted by me, Pete Behrens, with contributions from our global guide community. It's produced by Ryan Dugan with music by Joy Zimmerman. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review or share a comment and visit our website, agileleadershipjourney.com forward slash podcast 
for guest profiles, episode references, transcripts, and to explore more about your own leadership journey.